Do you have your Carlo Rossi? Hell yeah, I do. <laughs> Classy. Hey, murder lovers. My name is Mackenzie. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. I guess we can jump right into the story, but um, I will go on a Duggar tangent at the end. Yes. I'm like, let's. I want to talk about it right now, but I'll wait. Um, So stick around for the end because there's been news in the Duggar world. Uh, I was telling you I had a hard time finding a story. And then I found out while researching that there is an old tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. From who? You know, so you know the song, um, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. Is that the name of the song? Yeah. There's a line in the song that says there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glory of Christmas is long, long ago. Right. It's an old European tradition to tell scary ghost stories on Christmas Eve. Oh, fun. And it faded out. And so, like, I went on a mission to find a good scary ghost stories. Obviously, the Christmas Carol, the movie, you know, Mm -hmm. and the playwright and everything in the book uh, by Charles Dickens is the classic um, because it does feature three, four different ghosts, if you include Jacob Marley, but I didn't feel like telling that whole okay. story <laughs> and getting copyrighted. And so my plans fell flat. <laughs> so we're not doing that. <laughs> so we're not doing that, um, which I'm super devastated about. It's fine. It's fine. Whatever. Okay. Maybe next year. <laughs> but I just wanted to tell you that that was an old tradition, and I'm really a fan. That is cool. I feel like we should bring it back. <laughs> Can you imagine? I think it'd be great. I think it'd be funny. I think it would be fantastic. If you don't act right and you don't there's, listen to these ghost stories, well, you don't like get your presents. a lot of logic to it because they basically, because the months of, de- or the days in December are so much shorter because... It's darker. It's yeah. darker and everything darker, like yeah. that. And then I think like the 22nd or something is the shortest day of the year as far oh. as daylight goes. So they say the veil is thinnest then between... Oh. worlds which i was like i thought it was supposed to be on halloween I mean, apparently in some cultures it's not it's around christmas eve so that's so interesting i'm pretty excited about that yeah. i feel like i maybe need to start a new tradition one day with my children and terrify them so wait just to be clear you're not doing a ghost no story? i wanted to <laughs> but i just want to tell you like I'll how we got up. here <laughs> This is how we got here. So then I was like, fine, I'll just do, like, a Christmas crime story. But, like, I couldn't stomach, like, murder, murder. Like, a direct murder, if you will. And that brings us to the Christmas hijacking of Flight 8969. Okay. Yeah. All of that to say, here we are. (laughs) So. What if the new tradition is just tell stories about... How we... that happened around Christmas. That should be the new... Maybe. Maybe we can take it and make it our own. Um, so the so year... gather around, children, around the fire. Gather around the fire. <laughs> in a world before cell phones. The year was 1994, and Algeria mm. was in the midst of a civil war. Okay. So aircrafts during this time were being rerouted due to the possibility of missile attacks if they were flying into mm. Algeria. Um, But poor Air France was stuck with their routes. So Air France had to, according to the government, they still had to make regular trips between France and Algeria. And they had requested uh, permission from the government to cancel any more flights from Algeria, but they were still waiting for a response. And um, in the meantime, they had decided that any crew or any plane that flew into Algeria 
and had to stay in Algeria would be made up of a crew of volunteers, basically. So they oh. were people that worked for Air France, but they volunteered to do the flight. Gotcha. So on December 24th of 1994, they still hadn't received permission from the government to cancel any more flights into Algeria. So they staffed and loaded a plane and the staff again was volunteers. Um, this included 51-year-old Bernard Delhem, I believe. Listen, okay, before we get too far into this, <laughs> there's a lot of names that I do not know how to pronounce, all right? Mostly French. Uh, French, French and uh, Arabic and uh, Algerian. There was Jean-Paul Borderi, I believe, was the co-pilot, and Alan Boussat, who was the flight engineer. And they were, they had flown into Algeria, and they were now, at this point, going to exit and head back to Paris. Oh, okay. So all had gone fine as far as flying in. And then as they were loading up their plane and scheduled to depart from the Algiers airport, they uh, were supposed to leave at 11.15 a.m. And at this point, the passengers had loaded. Everything was good to go. They were just waiting for the all clear. And then four armed men boarded the plane. Oh, they were still on the ground. They were still on the ground okay. at this point. And these men were dressed as Algerian poli or presidential police. So they were wearing a blue uniform and it had the Air Algier logo on it. And apparently this was a very normal thing for the Algerian police to come in and check passports and things like that. But they were often, for the most part, unarmed. It was just like a routine check type thing. So they were... The staff was a little concerned about the fact that these guys were coming on board with guns. That seemed a little off to them. And then um, two of them went and began checking passenger passports. One went to the cockpit and one stood guard in front of the door to the plane. And then the flight attendant that was working said he realized one of them had dynamite showing from underneath oh, his no. jacket and was like, well, this isn't normal. And he right. was like, something's definitely off. So they are continuing to go through and check everything. And this is delaying the flight from taking off. Of course. And the Algerian military, who is working the airport at this point mm -hmm. because of the state of war that they're in, um, notices that the aircraft is not leaving at its designated time. So it's declared an unauthorized delay. Basically, mm -hmm. they haven't been notified of a reason why this flight is delayed. So something is a mess. Right. The military begins to actually surround the plane. Oh. And one of the passengers notices that the special intervention group, who goes by the nickname of the ninjas, <laughs> which I was like, I love that, um, is kind of like, they're on guard all around them. And they're like, this isn't normal because wrong. they wouldn't be surrounding the plane if they knew the guys that were on the plane. Because one of their own, supposedly, right. is already on the airplane right. so like what's the need for all of this and then they one of the passengers hears the fake police at this point right. if, like um call the men outside tyrants in arabic uh. and they were like well because <laughs> you're not gonna call one of your own a tyrant yep. Yep. um they obviously had very strong feelings about these men on the ground and they were using arabic which is ding 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 big clue right and so at that moment, they knew that these men on board were actually terrorists that were hijacking their plane. Oh, no. 
So the men then at that point revealed themselves as jihad terrorists. They were bent on establishing Algeria as an Islamic state, and they targeted an Air France plane because they viewed France as foreign invaders. So they were standing in their way of turning Algeria into what they wanted it to be. Um, the terrorists included Abdul Abdullah Yahia. Um, he was twenty, only 25 years old. He was described as a notorious murderer in the research that I was doing, but I couldn't actually find why he was declared that. Some also referred to him as like a petty thief. Um, so he had committed crimes, but I didn't see anything like murder related. Sure. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. I just... Right. It just wasn't on yeah. the media. Right. They showed their guns. They obviously had numerous explosives on them. And these four guys took over this plane that had 220 passengers on it and 12 crew members. That's so many. So first things first, um, they put a pack of dynamite in the cockpit and then another under a seat in the middle of the plane and linked them together with a detonator (gasps) wire. So if something went awry, basically that detonator wire would blow both up at the same time and take out the whole plane. They told the pilots to give them their uniforms, and then they put on the staff clothing. So basically, it was to, like, confuse any snipers. So if a sniper was actually, like, trying to take out one of them out with a shot, they looked like they were crew members. Oh, man. And then the lead of this whole thing, who is Abdul, uh, told them, quote, Allah has chosen us to die, and Allah has chosen you to die with us. Allah guarantees our success. Inshallah, which means God willing. Mm -hmm. So they were like, Great, so we're all going to die. Like, that's kind of the underlying message here. They said that um, the passengers... Sorry. Spoiler. Some of these passengers are going to survive. They said that these men became really enraged by seeing men and women sitting together. They, um, jihad... Oh. Yeah, so jihad terrorists in general tend to practice a form of Islam that is based on Sharia law. So Mm -hmm. Sharia law is very, very, very strict old school. Like it is just, um, I have very strong feelings about Sharia law. It's not, it's not great. So, um, it's interpreted. It's the way that it's interpreted. That is extreme. Right. And that's the thing is Sharia law is an interpretation Mm -hmm. of the Quran that is incredibly extreme. So, They were really upset to see these men and women sitting together. They were upset that they were using the same bathroom. And they were upset that these women were on the plane without their heads covered. Oh, okay. So they forced the women to cover their head, including all the crew that was female. And if they couldn't find a veil to wear, then they had to wear blankets over their heads. Wow. Which that, I mean, this is going to go on for a few days. So that would just like... Days? Yeah. So that, can you imagine... And then over the radio, again, Abdul told them, we are the soldiers of mercy. Allah has selected us as his, shul- as his soldiers, and we're here to wage war in his name. Oh, man. So they're really declaring what their intention is with this whole thing. We are here to wage war. Like, right. we are here to create upset, if you mm-hmm. will. The minister of the interior in Algeria came to the airport, the control tower itself, and he was like, all right, I'm cool. Like, I'm here. Like, let's start negotiating, which I don't really understand the point of him showing up to negotiate because what we find out later on is that they were not willing to do any type of negotiations, Mm. but he was like, I'm here for you to speak with. Sure. I mean, at first, probably they wanted to try and see if they would. If it was reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So they demanded that they release two members of the Islamic Salvation Front who were under house arrest in Algeria. They were part of a political party 
that was, again, a form of this Islam that was banned in Algeria in 1992. And because they had continued practicing and continued to violate those laws, they had been placed under house arrest. So they demanded that these men be released. The minister countered and basically said, I'm not doing anything until you release these children and the elderly off the plane. Once you do that, then we can go ahead and have further discussions. And they were like, "Mm -hmm, no. So both are like kind of holding firm in their stance. And so government officials were called in. Again, this is Christmas Eve. So government officials are called in from Christmas break in both France and Algeria to kind of deal with this crisis. So by 1 p.m., Again, this happened about 11.15 in the morning. By 1 p.m., the hijackers told the captain that he needs to take off and fly to Paris. Oh, no. And he was like, they they basically were like, we're going to hold a press conference there, but you need to get us there. The captain was like, I wish I could, but these stairs are still attached to the plane. I can't take off with stairs still mm-hmm. attached to the plane. And all the Algerian authorities have their vehicles all parked on this tarmac that are blocking us. Like, we cannot take off. Sure. And so he, the hijackers make the captain get on the intercom, whatever, the radio, and ask them to move. And says, like, this is the plan or whatever. You guys need to get out of the way. Right. And the authorities are like, yeah, no. No. We're not moving. You guys aren't going anywhere. And so then the hijackers are like, if you don't move things, we're going to blow this plane up. Oh, man. And the government still refused. So the hijackers go back and they get a passenger that they had noted during passport checks. And this particular passenger was a member of the Algerian police. And that was indicated on his passport for some reason. Okay. So they tell him to get up and follow him to the front of the plane. And the guy is like super hesitant, obviously, to go up there with him. And for whatever reason, his name isn't published. And I have a feeling it's to protect his family. Okay. Um, Because there does end up being retaliation later on for everything that's happened. So I think that that's the reason why. But he's pleading for his life. He's like, please don't kill me. I have a wife. I have a child. Like, please spare me. That kind of thing. They take him up to the front of the plane. They open the door to the plane. And they shoot him in the head. And he falls out of the plane dead on the tarmac. And there's actually, if I recall, and this is the plane hijacking that I'm thinking of, I believe there's video footage of them doing this, at least at one point. The cockpit at this point with the pilot and the engineer and the co-pilot and everything like that is closed off, so they don't know what's happened. A lot of the people back further in the plane don't know what's happened, but they come to find out that anytime the door, like the sign comes on that the door has been opened, that means somebody's died. My God. And so one of the stewardess is allowed to kind of go up back and forth between the the cockpit and the plane and when she goes in and asks the the captain of the plane if he needs anything whatever gets him some water she whispers in his ear and says a passenger has been killed Um, and despite this display um, the algerian police still refuse their demands so they up the ante and they go back and they get 48 year old boo too to his last name i believe he is a member of the vietnam embassy in algeria And the passenger said that he was not intimidated at all by the terrorists, and this Mm. really agitated them. They were very frustrated by that. So they take him up to the front of the plane, and the thought from everybody is that he's going to be released because he's a member of the Vietnam embassy. 
and maybe they're making a trade or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Okay. But he is taken to the top of the stairs and shot in the head, and his body drops out Good of the plane. God. The flight attendant then makes another trip into the cockpit and whispers into the captain's ear that there are now two fatalities. French government catches wind of what's been going on and the fact that these people are being executed and they want to bring their own military in to handle the situation safely because the majority of the passengers on board French. are actually French. And the Algerian officials refuse. And they're mm-hmm. like, this is our issue on our soil. Like, no, you're not coming. Oh, man. So the prime minister of France, in st- strong words, basically says, you need to let this plane take off. And it needs to get here. Right. Because you guys clearly are not equipped to handle this. They're not handling it well. Right. But the Algerian officials refuse. Oh, shit. So the captain of the plane is trying to keep everything calm. He later explains that, like, they're kind of trained as far as what to do in these kind of situations. I'm sure and they what are. to yeah. expect. And basically says, like, the expectation and what happens normally is that the beginning of a hijacking is often very violent. This is where everything at the... Be- it all is basically at the beginning and the end. They're drawing a line. Yeah. Right. So they're setting expectations very quickly. Um, So the beginning is always violent. The crew is expected to keep people calm. They need to buy time. And they need to show the uh, the hijackers who they are as people. And basically build Uh, a bond with them. Yeah, yeah. And gain their trust. So that's kind of what they're doing. Like, they're kind of, like, trying to keep people calm. But they're also, like, the flight attendants are offering them food and drinks. And they're, like, the captain is talking to the one that's up in the the cockpit with him. Because there is somebody that stays up there pretty much the whole time with them. And they're just kind of, like, rapport building. Later we find out that the several of the hijackers would kind of, like, sit with the passengers and talk with them. Very often trying to convert them. Oh. Um... And a couple of the passengers, like, they would play into it and they'd be like, yeah, totally. There were some that were, like, steadfast and they're like, nah, dude, like, you're not going to get me. There was one that was, like, outright, like, I'm an atheist and you're not going to convince me otherwise. You know, they were kind of like, excuse me, sir, do you have time to talk about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? But different, you know? (laughs) More extreme version of that. Don't run from the Lord. <laughs> so, anywho. Um, so, in the meantime, the French military has begun training simu- simulation, simulations. Training simulations to prepare to storm the plane. So, they've brought in a plane that is basically the exact the same, same plane or whatever to, like, figure out, like, okay, what would it take? And how could we storm this? And how could we take it over? And everything like that. They're running drills to try and figure in this France. out. In France. Okay. Um, actually, I'm sorry. They had at this point come into Spain because Spain, Spain officials let them come there, but they were not allowed to come to Algeria. So they're like, we're going to be as close as possible right. without actually like pissing anybody off. So if we get the go, we can go as fast as possible. Right, right. So they're actually in Spain running these drills. But the Algerian government catches wind of this and they reiterate that they are not welcome in Algeria under any circumstances. You guys can stop all of your drills because you ain't coming here. Yeah, they're super stubborn in this whole thing. Um, So around 2 a.m. on December 25th, which is Christmas Day, the captain is allowed to leave the cockpit and he makes a tour of the plane. He finds two of the hijackers asleep on the floor. Oh, wow. (laughs) They're like on a rotation or something at this point. (laughs) Um, But all is calm and quiet. A mole in the organization basically lets... France know that the plan is to actually 
crashed the plane into the Eiffel Tower. And that's what they were planning to do all along. And that's why they're trying to get wheels off the ground is not to do a press conference, is to fly that plane into the Eiffel Tower. So on December 25th, the hijackers decided that they were going to release 63 passengers for whatever reason. Call it a Christmas miracle, if you will. For those people, absolutely. Yeah. Um, The passengers that they released included children and those with severe medical issues. Oh, okay. So they were like... Compassionate? Mercy. Right. And the terrorists also offered to release all the Algerian passengers. So only the French and those, the other, you know... Only they would get stuck, but a lot of the Algerian passengers actually refused, and many of them said that they feared that the French passengers would be killed without all of them on board, so they were steadfast in their alliance, which I was like, oh, people coming together. Um, The Algerian police then pulled the most iconic move that I have seen in a very long time. They called Abdul's mom. No <laughs> way. <laughs> and Abdul, if you don't come out of there, pretty call much. your mom. <laughs> They're like, I'm going to call your mother. I mean, that might work, though. What happened? So they were like, Miss Yahia, your son, who's committed an act of terrorism. Can you come get him? <laughs> I need you to come pick him up from school. <laughs> um, and they were like, listen, we need you to reason with him. And yeah. tell him that he needs to get it together, basically. Like, calm him down. So, mom agrees Good. that she'll talk to her son. Wow. But the plan backfires. Ugh. And instead, uh, Abdul is enraged that they've oh called his mother. And so, he... It's, like, it's truly, like, the worst move. They grabbed two members of the French embassy at this point that are still on board the plane. Oh, I didn't know there was more embassy members. Yep. One of them is a chef named Yannick Benet. And over the mic, they force him to plea to let them take off. He's like, please, for the love of God, let this plane take off. And if they didn't allow takeoff by 9.30 p.m., they would begin killing one passenger every 30 minutes. Damn. Starting with Chef Yannick. And the chef was obviously beside himself. The other passengers tried reassuring him. They were like, they're bluffing. They're just trying to, you know, they're trying to pull a power move here. They're not going to, they're not going to make good on this. Well, 930 rolls around and they've still not been cleared for takeoff. So Chef Yannick is shot in the head and tossed onto the tarmac. Oh my God. At this point, France has had enough. So France, the prime minister of France gets on the phone with the Algerian prime minister and is basically like, listen to me, you've had your chance. You've made this a hundred times worse. You've called this guy's mom. It's still not getting resolved. Right. This is verbatim. Right. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) And basically is like, if more people die, all these French people on board, I'm going to hold Algeria responsible for this. And we're going to wage war on you guys. Well, my, they shot a French person. Yeah. Uh, the second French person, right? Three. Yeah. So, no. The first the first one was an Algerian police officer. The second one was a member of the Vietnam embassy. Oh, okay. And now this guy. Was a French guy. Was a Frenchman. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, 
they're like this this promise of killing one passenger per 30 minutes or whatever he's going through with it yeah and the majority of the passengers are french <sighs> and he's like this blood is going to be on your hands because you've stopped us from coming in and actually right. taking care of this situation so i'm going to hold you responsible and you are going to pay the price for this yeah and so at that point the algerian government finally agreed to let the plane leave to let it leave not yep. even let to let France. Nope, they're gonna let it leave. Come in and do something, man. Because the plane has been sitting in idle at this point the entire mm -hmm. time on the tarmac, it doesn't have enough fuel to actually make it to Paris. Ugh. So the plan is that they are going to take off from the Algerian airport. They are going to land in Marseille. Is that how you pronounce Marseille, it? Marseille, Marseille. I think it's Marseille. And they're gonna land in Marseille, and they are gonna get fuel there, and then they're gonna go over to Paris. Okay. The captain said that the hijackers were giddy with the news. He said that they were like kids. They were so excited. They were going to take off. They were going to go to Paris. They got their way. They were, like, thrilled. That would be red flag number one for me. Yeah. But he confronts them, and it's basically like, what is your plan? Like, are you going to blow up this plane? Are you going to fly it into a building? Like, what is your idea? And they're like, no, no, no. We really are going to do this press conference. Like, that really is our plan. And the captain was like, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. But he doesn't really have a choice at this point. So at 3.33 a.m. on December 26th, the plane lands in Marseille. Okay. They have allowed it to take off. It lands in Marseille. So at this point, it is in France. Yeah. By then, the French military has continued their yeah. drills and their practice runs and everything like that that they have organized over in Spain. And they meet the plane in nice. Marseille. Nice. And they're like, cool, we're ready. So all dressed like airport security and staff. <laughs> they are the ones that are running the show on the ground. And so the guy that has the like nice little lit up batons or whatever sure. is actually the military personnel. Yeah, That's military funny. personnel. And he leads the plane over into a remote corner of the airport. And at this point, the hijackers request from the control tower 27 tons of fuel. Now, the plane actually only needs nine to make it from Marseille to Paris. Paris. So, by requesting the other tons of fuel, yeah. they deduce that basically the plan is either to reroute the plane to somewhere in the Middle East, uh. would be most likely, or that they're planning on blowing it up and turning the whole thing into a fireball, basically. Oh, even more. Okay. Yeah. So they're like, okay, we need to buy time. So they delayed the plane by offering them food. They offered them water. They even offered them a vacuum cleaner to vacuum out the plane. They changed <laughs> out all of the sewage, did the plumbing, everything like that. They did full service. What they don't know is that the service crew that is coming on the plane to do all this stuff is actually military personnel. And wow. as they're going through and doing all of this stuff, they're planting bugs in the plane as they go so they can listen to everything that's oh, going that's so on. smart. Um, they're getting like a real lay of the land, yeah, if you will. And so the prime minister tells the hijackers, you know what? I think it'd be a really good idea if you guys had your press conference here because all the major news sources, they all have offices here. Like you mm. guys can do it here. And the hijackers are like, cool. Yeah. Like, let's do that. <laughs> I'm like, what was your plan after that? So they agreed. But then they start to get suspicious when media never shows up for their press conference. 
They're just sitting at a table at a buffet table with they literally They literally like cleared the front of the plane so that they could open the door to the plane oh, and so actually have the press there. conference. And they were like, you know, so it's not as like daunting and interfering. Why don't you move all of the passengers to like the back of the plane? You guys have the whole front of the plane to broadcast from. So all the passengers are moving to the back of the plane. So they're, they're all they're all gathered at the rear. Okay. And so they're all standing there at the door and they're like, yes, like our moment has come, but no media ever shows up. Hey, Abdul, how's my makeup? <laughs> they're like shimmering up their beards. How's my nose? Am I good? <laughs> and so they're like, okay, what is going on? Because media never shows up and they've also never gotten the fuel that they asked for. Oh. So they can't take off and they're sitting ducks at this point. So they get pissed. And they tell the captain of the plane to move the plane Mm. over so it sits right underneath the control tower. And the military is like, well, crap. Because they had it all set up ready to go and put them in the remote corner so they could, like, reduce... Impact or damage. Right. They were, like, as little possibility of... Collateral stuff. Exactly. As possible. That's not the case anymore because now they're sitting under the control tower. So if the plane blows up, everybody in the control pl- tower is going to go, right. you know, kaboom. So they move the plane. The captain agrees they're going to move the plane. So they move the plane. And I picture on the floor, like, military men running around with, like, these stairs. Because they have three sets of stairs that they're going to try and line up to the plane to actually open the door and barge in. The hijackers don't realize that the door opens from the outside. Oh. They think okay. it only opens from the inside, but they have these stairs that they're running around with. Right. So they get up to the control tower and they, the hijackers be actually be in firing at the tower. So they take out oh, their guns what? and they be in firing at the tower. And then that's where the military team is like, all right, go. Like, we got to do done. this. Like, let's, let's go. go. So they run up with the stairs and then realize that the plane that they have been practicing with is actually a plane that is not loaded with occupants and luggage and all that kind of stuff. So it changes the suspension of the plane. So these stairs are too tall. Oh, fuck. And they don't line up correctly in order for them to open up the door. So they have to go back, (laughs) readjust their stairs, (laughs) and then they come running out, wheeling them across, like, the plane tarmac again and line it up with the plane. And at this point, they go ahead and swing open the door, and all troops go storming into the plane. Hmm. Um, one hijacker is killed immediately when gunfire ensues and everything blows to pieces and they begin evacuating the passengers out the back of the plane. Oh, okay. So they're evacuating them out the back of the plane and we're able to actually evacuate everybody. At this point, one of the, um, I think it was the co-pilot kicked out the windows in the plane at the front and was able to jump out of the window. And they said that the hijacker that was actually at the front of the plane in the cockpit could have killed all of them in there before the military actually reached them because it was barricaded, but didn't. And the captain was like, I think it was because of the relationship that we had built during Mm -hmm. that time that there was like a mutual respect there. And so he didn't kill us before he died. Damn. But the military did kill all of the hijackers involved. Passenger and crew were treated for injuries, but nobody else died. Um, There were several that were shot with, like... Ricochets? Ricochets or, you know, like, misfires and things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, But they were all treated for their injuries, and the crew received high national honors. The captain actually continued to work for Air France for nine years. Wow. 
both of the flight, there were two flight attendants that both were immediately like, nah, we're good. Like, yep, we're out of nope. here. We're not flying anymore. Um, one said that she was haunted by the faces of those that were executed Ugh. in particular because she had been up there and watched the whole oh. thing. And the armed Islamic group claimed responsibility for the incident, and they ended up actually retaliating by killing four Roman Catholic priests in Algeria, three oh, of which were shit. French and one was Belgian. Oh, my gosh. But that is where the story ends. That is the Christmas hijacking of Flight 8969. Oh, that's so sad. That is so sad. So three civilians, right? Three civilians. Yeah, it's funny because in a lot of um, a lot of what I read, it said four, but then nobody else was listed. They had picked somebody else to die um, mm. right at the end, but then they said, like, I don't want to kill you and ended up, from my understanding, not killing that fourth person. But then all four of them died. So it was a total of seven people killed gotcha. throughout. Oh, I can't imagine. You know, because you're probably getting on the plane ride. Probably go back to France to enjoy the holidays. Yeah, you're trying to get home in time for Christmas. And you were going to get home in time for Christmas. And your life changes in an instant. My goodness. There was a lot of sneaky stuff going on, though. Like, good for them, like... Well, first of all, they come in with the bad with the wrong uniforms. France is ready. Do something else. Yeah. Dang. I just like I kind Are of die laughing at the <laughs> image. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I die laughing at the image of them running up on the stairs and being like, "Oh no, it doesn't fit," and then oh, running no. back with the stairs like. <laughs> Switch the stairs. No, they did good though. That must have been even scarier to and go the under fact the that control they were, tower. They were ready and planning and prepping, even right. though they were told like, "Nah, you're not gonna get a crack at this." They're like, "We're gonna be ready just in case." I mean, that's a whole thing. If 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 you have a country where a lot of your own people are in trouble like that, and there's no response, the country of origin is gonna be is in the spotlight. Like, are you going to do something? What are you going to do? You have to do something. Right. So whatever country it would have been, but in this case, France had to do something, had to react in some way to try and save, even if they weren't successful, they had to attempt something to try and save their own people. So yeah. glad they did because, and I'm, and you know, it's, it's weird how things happen. Like the fact that they were idling for so long that they had to stop where they stopped, stop again. where they stopped. Yeah. And, that they didn't, you know, they weren't able to even get to where they wanted to. So that's good. That's weird. Yeah. That's but if story. you are a government official, please don't ever call a terrorist mother. It makes the situation <laughs> much worse. <laughs> much, much worse. When they're like, they called his mom. I was like, no. They his mom. His mom. That's funny. He's like, damn it, why'd you call my mom? <laughs> Mom, I, I told you, I told you I'd be back by dinner on Sunday. <laughs> God. Oh, yeah. Damn it, Mom, I know I didn't throw out the trash. I'll be back. Okay, I'm done. But it is a nice little, speaking of Sharia law and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it's a nice little segue into the Duggars. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus you know what's Christ. so funny, though, is, I know, this is, like, going to be, like, really abrupt and, 
It's not the same. It is not the same. I will say that. But every time I see one of them, like one of the daughters bleaching, one of them just bleached her hair recently. She went blonde. And then another one posted a photo of her in like shorts or something like that. Like short shorts. Okay. I was like, yes, girls, you find that liberation and freedom. (laughs) Like you don't have to wear those skirts to your ankles anymore. It makes me so happy for them. It's not actually what they wear, but it's that they're told that they have to that is bothersome it's that's like, the part that drives me crazy I'll, I'll wear long skirts but that's because i want to that's because i didn't shave my legs that week that's, yeah you know because i want to but i don't know with any religion when someone is told to do it i guess there's a lot of religions that tell you to do stuff but oh, religion is finicky and weird but They've definitely been in some hot waters, at least that particular family. Yes, they have. So in case you have missed the news, um, you all know my feelings about Josh Duggar. Josh Duggar was found guilty on one count of possessing what is being called child pornography. You guys know how I feel about that word. So child sex abuse materials. And also one count of receiving, was receiving and... Was it receiving and having? I didn't read it because I wanted you to tell me. Now I feel like that episode of Friends where Joey is trying to figure out their what he's going to say at their wedding. And he's like <laughs> receiving and having and loving and sharing. Uh, he was convicted of one count of receiving and one count of possessing. Which I'm like, how does one possess without receiving? Unless you create. Mm. That's how. Okay. Of child sex abuse materials. Um, He faces up to 20 years in prison for each count for a total of 40 years. Dang. I originally read it that it was up to 20 years. It looks like it's now up to 40 years. Mm. Um, And obviously, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth in fines. So, pretty, pretty... So, like I said, I didn't read any of this because I wanted you to tell me because I know that you've been reading up on it. Yes. So, what's... um... So right now he's just been convicted. He hasn't he has been, been sentenced con- yet. Not been sentenced yet. Okay. And what's what what's going on with the wife? Anna was my understanding is that Anna has basically stood by his side throughout. Right. Um, I know when I told when she saw that you posted it, she goes, "Where's Anna now? What is she doing now that he's been convicted?" She goes, "She should be convicted of something too <laughs> for yeah. endangering the kids, or you know." But yeah, so they had several family members that came in to testify. Notably, a couple of the sisters testified. Right. Um, his cousin, Amy Damn. Duggar, who was often on the show, testified. A woman named Bobby, who was a family friend that supposedly knew about what Josh had done when he was a child as far as like touching these girls, the girls. Um, testified. And said she didn't report it because they were sought out as spiritual counselors or whatever. (sighs) Just let me roll my eyes a little harder. But Anna... She hasn't made any public statements, right? Anna has not. um, Anna has not made any public statements. They said that she remains stoic when she shows up, but that she has been there throughout. Um, And... It sounds like it's weird because it's almost like seeing someone, and I don't want to say just specifically women because we've talked about this before, where it's not only women that you know can be in an abusive relationship or anything, but it's kind of seeing, kind of like seeing Anna in this relationship where she's like, the cards are all laid out, 
The evidence is there. She knows what it is. You know what's been, what he's been accused of, and now what a court of law has confirmed he was responsible for. So, you know, I hope she finds, whether that's with fa- a friend's family, her church, the I hope power. It's, I hope it's not her church, because her church is going to encourage her to be the dutiful wife that mm, stands by her husband, because that is the essence of what has been demonstrated so far. Yeah, but I hope she... I, I hope, hope her parents p- talk to her. Finds the strength to open her eyes and see what's in front of her for what it is yep. and not blindly think that it's going to change or that anything is going to be different um, and does what's good for her kids. Um, so there's that. Not that she'll ever listen to this, but, you know, for maybe someone else that's in that position, there's just some things you can't come back from. Yeah. So. Um. And you can get away from though. Says that Anna remained by her husband's side each day as they walked in and out of court holding hands. Oh, God. (sighs) Um, Not condoning abuse, but sometimes you want to slap someone. Yeah. Or shake them, shake some sense into them. So, as far as Anna goes, I don't really know what she's going to do here. It sounds like she's going to stand by his side, but if he's in prison for 40 years, hopefully that solves all that. Right. The problem is, is that the porn... Basically, sex abuse material. Yeah, so I'm going to clarify here. So we know that Josh has been in porn stuff before. Like, he's, you know... Into porn stuff? Yeah, so he's admitted... I was like, good God, who's watching that? (laughs) No, he's admitted to soliciting these types of materials before. Supposedly all adults. Madison, right? He was found out to be part of that Ashley Madison thing where he was having extramarital affairs. She stood by his side through all of that. He went into treatment for sex addiction. Right. Um, He admitted to abusing his own sisters and family members that were underage. He even admitted to penetrating them with his fingers. Was he over 18 when that happened? No. Oh. No. Um, But, again, she stood by his side for all of this. And now they found out that he had child sex abuse materials that contained images of toddlers. Yeah. And she continues to, like, be blindly led by this narrative that it was somebody else. That's what the defense was. It was somebody else. It wasn't Josh. It wasn't on his personal computer. It was only on the work computer computer at the dealership. It could have been anyone else at the dealership. There was no way it was him. And she's following that narrative. So I do not think that there's any hope for her whatsoever. Unless she has a divine awakening. Yeah. And and not just to keep it all on her. Obviously, he's the one that needs to rot in jail. But He's the one that needs to rot in jail. But I will say, don't at me about this. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. It's her responsibility to protect her kids. Oh, absolutely. So Knowing what she knows, she needs to protect her kids. She needs to protect her kids. And if she doesn't, then... When you have kids that are the same age as the ones that show up in the stuff that he's been viewing, and you know that even his sisters run off limits, you have some responsibility there. Damn. Yeah. That's what I'll say about that. No, I'll stand with you on that one. I said what I said. I said what I said. (laughs) But, on to... Oh, and then, I I forgot to tell you, did you see what I posted the other day about Jana? 
Oh, yeah. No, Kara saw that, too. And I was just like, oh, well, my gosh. She's like, what is going on over there? Things are getting wild. <laughs> she couldn't so, find anything on it. So tell me what you found. So what I found are things. I hunted the comment section on many of these posts. So Jana Duggar was cited for child endangerment. Right. It was a misdemeanor. Um, Jana is one of the, I think she is the oldest girl, mm -hmm. not the oldest, but the oldest girl. She is not married. She does not have any kids of her own, but she often takes on the responsibility of babysitting all these other hordes of children. <laughs> and so she's babysitting this herd, if you will, and falls asleep. And my understanding is that she fell asleep. The kids wandered out of the house and were found. And since she was the one that was responsible for them. And they were out unsupervised okay. that she was charged with child endangerment. Now, if I were Jana, I'd be like, that's the last time I'm babysitting for any of you people. Right. Um, I, was trying to... I mean, that's... Jana's like, listen, I'm tired from right. raising all of these siblings of mine. Well, and that headline read, you know, rode the coattails of Josh Duggar. It was literally, so... like, within 24 hours of him being convicted. Right. So, I... And it's an older... Thing, right and her and it's not that it's that her court date's not till now but it's like 2018 i think 19 i don't think so i think it was um i thought it was just in september oh maybe but yeah it was she was cited on september 9th okay well you know she'll appear in court on january 10th so we'll find out more information then the problem is is that anytime i try and find an article about what jana's done it it's goes josh Jana was recently cited for this. This comes on the heels of her brother being convicted right. for all these different things. And here's the story about her brother. It's right. like, I don't care. So, I mean, there is obviously a spotlight on the family. Jana's citation, I guess, yeah. is nowhere near as it's not the horrible same. as Josh's. Well, it doesn't even compare. And her, their cousin Amy has made a statement about Jana and said, I'll call out what's right and I'll call out what's wrong. This couldn't have been intentional. She said, I bet you were exhausted, stressed, and emotionally worn out. Watching multiple kids is hard because there's so many of them and you only have two eyes. It's a very sad situation and my heart goes out to Jana Duggar. Love you. Uh, it was one child. The child was okay and found but didn't find any additional – they didn't cite any additional information. So basically right. it's one kid that got out right. from her supervision of all these other people that are having children and dumping the responsibility on right. her to watch them. Yeah. I just... Poor girl. Well, yeah. Falling asleep on the couch and letting one of your nieces and nephews run out is not the same thing as abusing children. And that's probably like one of 15, to be honest, that she was Minimum. probably watching. Yeah. And she was responsible for raising all of her younger siblings yeah. along the way. So one of our listeners, she refers to herself as a wee Scottish lass. <laughs> which I really love. Um, she asked me if we use the word nonce, N-O-N-C-E. I and I was like, no, but I like it. Yeah. And she was like, that's the word that we use when we talk about um, people like Chris Andrew. <laughs> and apparently it's like a British thing. And so I Googled it and I was like, what, what is, is this it? word? And it's like a British slang for like a pedophile <gasps> or like a somebody that abuses children or no whatever. Way. But she, we were talking about, Nuts. she had DM'd about the Josh Duggar thing. Because she was like, I don't know who these people are. Because she's not from America, obviously. Yeah. And I was like, it's this family that like they had a million oh, children so or whatever. And she was like. She was like, imagine having 20 kids. And then she's like, I guess it would be like a marble down an alleyway by the 20th. <laughs> and I was like, yes. A hundred percent. And she was like, 
Uh, she's like, so is this the oldest son? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, uh, she goes, uh, fucking nonce. And I was like, what is this word? And she was like, is that a thing there? So I told her I'd try and work it in, but I don't think I'm saying it right. So this is, is nonce or nonce? N-O-N-C-E. Hold on. Let me Google it. Maybe they'll nonce give me a pronunciation. Nonce or nonce? Oh, yeah. Nonce. Yeah. A person convicted of a sexual offense, especially child molesting. Oh, sorry. That was my YouTube. Yeah. Nonce. Okay. I got it. Can you please use it in a sentence? <laughs> uh, Josh Duggar is a nonce. <laughs> Nonsense. So that's my that's my word of the day. Interesting. Okay, well. Told her I'd work it in somehow. This is me casually working it in. Okay. Patreons? Patreons. So the first Patreon that we have today is a member of the Murder Lovers Club and also a friend of mine since middle school. Oh. Elise. Hey, hey girl. Elise. Hey. Good to see your name pop up, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and then the second Patreon, who is also a member of the Murder Lovers Club, is Alex. Hey, Alex. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, both of you, two new Patreons, I just put your stuff in the mail. And then for all the other Patreons, you should have started receiving your stuff. If you haven't, it's probably still in the mail. <laughs> if you're Check your mailboxes. From us, check your mailboxes. boxes. Um, but hope you enjoy it. If you have any questions on how to use the sticker that we send you or how to use it please let me know and um, I've been thinking about doing a little tutorial so you guys can take a look at how to put it on either like a water bottle or your laptop wherever you want to show us off alright cool thank you so much everybody thank you happy holiday season happy holidays okay bye bye now bye